You are listening to KZYX 90.7 FM Philo, KZYZ 91.5 FM Willits and Ukiah, 88.1 FM Fort Bragg. Altogether, we make up Mendocino County Public Broadcasting member-supported community radio. We also stream live on the web at kzyx.org. Support for KZYX comes from our members at W.E. Flowers of Ukiah and Willits, offering online and phone ordering, curbside pickup, and no-contact delivery of floral cheer. W.E. Flowers has 30 years in the flower industry and is an accredited member of the American Institute of Floral Designers. More at floristinukiah.com or 707-468-8522. Hi and welcome to Be More Now. My name is Blake Moore, and tonight I'm interviewing award-winning author and Stanford University professor Valerie Miner. She's a longtime visitor and now a more permanent resident of Mendocino County. Valerie will be reading from and discussing her 15th book, Bread and Salt Stories. But first, here's a song with a little Moroccan flavor to get us in the mood. You're an island of a girl Adrift in a world with the rising tide You know that the coming storm is gonna be a crazy ride With your altars made of trash The aftermath of disposable dreams 
And that was Beats Antique Rising Tide. So before I play the interview with me and Valerie Minor, I want to tell you a bit about her. Valerie Minor is the award-winning author of 15 books. Bread and Salt is her fourth collection of short stories. Her novels include Travels with Spirits, After Eden, Range of Light, A Walking Fire, Winter's Edge, Blood Sisters, All Good Women, Movement and Novel and Stories, and Murder in the English Department. Her short fiction books include Abundant Light, The Night Singers, and Trespassing. Her collection of essays is Rumors from the Cauldron, Selected Essays, Reviews, and Reportage. In 2002, The Low Road, a Scottish family memoir, was the finalist for the Penn USA Creative Nonfiction Award. Her short story collections, Trespassing and Abundant Light, were each finalists for the Lambda Literary Awards in 1990 and in 2005. Valerie Miner's work has appeared in the Georgia Review, Tri-Quarterly, Salma Gundy, New Letters, Plowshares, The Village Voice, Prairie Schooner, The Gettysburg Review, The TLS, The Woman's Review of Books, The Nation, and other journals. Her stories and essays are published in more than 60 anthologies. A number of her pieces have been dramatized on BBC Radio 4, and her work has been translated into German, Turkish, Danish, Italian, Spanish, French, Swedish, and Dutch. In addition to single-authored projects, she has collaborated on books, museum exhibits, as well as theater. She has won fellowships and awards from the Rockefeller Foundation, the Brown Foundation, the McKnight Foundation, the NEA, the Jerome Foundation, the Heinz Foundation, the Australia Council Literary Arts Board, and numerous other sources. She has received Fulbright fellowships to Tunisia, India, and Indonesia. Winner of a Distinguished Teaching Award, she has taught for over 25 years and is now a professor and artist-in-resident at Stanford University. She travels internationally giving readings, lectures, and workshops. She and her partner live in San Francisco and Mendocino County, California. Hi, Valerie. Welcome to Be More Now. Thanks. I'm happy to be here. Yeah, it's a pleasure. It's our second conversation. Yes, it is. So you have a new book, Bread and Salt. Do you want to start us off with an excerpt from that book? Sure. Um, I thought I might read a a couple of pages first of of, a much abridged short story, and then maybe later if I have time to read, I can finish it. Um, It's called Coming Through. As the plane finally settles at the gate, you pull on your warm black coat, returning to to the tundra. You edge toward the exit bracing for that blast of winter air between plane and gangway. Three tortuous hours squeezed between a bickering couple while the child behind you kicks your seat to the rhythm of the Lion King seeping from his earbuds. You offer to let the couple sit together. No way, they answer in unison. You address the child and then his father about the foot percussion. Each stares silently as if you were hallucinating. The flight attendant swears he has no empty seats. Finally, you're leaving them all behind. Relief is short-lived. Inside the clangorous terminal, you remember your four-hour layover. If all goes well, you'll get to frozen Minneapolis by midnight. Okay, you're a seasoned veteran of Greyhound Airlines. You can handle this. Keep busy. There's plenty of unfinished work. So you laboriously roll your heavy bag 
And then, voila, an abandoned luggage cart. You unload, glide along, searching for a restaurant where you can read charts on your laptop. Maybe I'll just stop there and we can pick it up later. Oh, gosh, I was so enthralled already. I want you to keep going. <laughs> I think we all relate to that experience just right there in an airplane. <laughs> yeah. In the day when not, we flew. Yeah. Yeah. Not so many people are doing it today, but um, I, just remind, I think this story reminds us of the nightmares of the so-called normal world. Right. I think that that feeling of being caught on an airplane, and I think my favorite detail in that was that the parents, didn't want to sit together. <laughs> right. You know? No, you, you're stuck with this. I'm sorry. So um, why did you title the book Bread and Salt? That's a good question. Um, I started the book <clears throat> thinking about salvage, thinking about salvaging um, relationships, the environment, thinking about things like reunion and repair. Um, and I was restoration return, forgiveness, and a lot of the stories in one way or another deal with those questions um, about our relationship with uh, other human beings and animals and, and the, the larger world in which we live. And then I um, wrote the, the novella, which ends the book, it's called Bread and Salt, and I realized that there are so many meanings to that phrase, which are familiar to many of us from different cultural heritages. And for instance, um, the way I first heard it was I was teaching in Tunisia and a um, friend invited me to dinner. And she said, uh, now we've shared bread and salt. We will, we will always be friends. And it's a form of um, a kind of alliance one makes by, by sharing a meal with another person. Um, it's sometimes um, meant to be a rapprochement between two people who've been at odds with one another. But bread and salt is um, a phrase used in so many cultures. Um, bread, of course, means nurturing or, or nourishment, and, and salt means flavor. Um, in the northern England, um, on New Year's Day, the first individual to enter a house is required to bring bread and salt and coal. And uh, one of the interesting things I learned um, researching the title was that in Russia, where this term is used a lot in Russian, of course, um, the word for hospitality is, is actually, and I'm going to murder the Russian, but klebosony, klebosony, and so that's welcome for hospitality, and it literally translates as bready, salty. Um, and I guess the last thing I'll say is when <clears throat> um, Americans landed on the International Space Station, they were met by the Russians um, with bread and salt. Uh, so, you know, it's, a, it's an international term. It has so many meanings of coming together and forgiveness and reconciliation that it felt to me that it tied together the whole book. Well, I, one of the reasons why I love being a poet is that you can say something and you hear it one way, and then when you realize the nuances of the meaning, there's, you can interpret it in so many different ways. So thank you so much. And you have a, an archway that looks very like a Moorish archway or like something that could be Moroccan and the cover of the book. And it's a beautiful cover. Is that one of the photos that you took? Actually, it is it was one of my, my photos, yeah. And from you were... It looks like you were in Morocco, Tunisia. Morocco and, and Tunisia. Um, yeah, I've, I've um, spent a fair amount of time in both 
places, yeah. Um, and you know, it was surprised a surprise to me. I the I didn't know that they would use this as a cover, but I think it works because it's kind of welcoming. The, the archway kind of welcomes you into the book. I think beautiful. You've lived one of my dreams. I've always wanted to disappear in Morocco for a few months and write a book. That's one of my future things is, is my life slowed down. <laughs> now it's way slow, but I'm not flying to Morocco. <laughs> well, you know, if you decide to go, let me know and I'll suggest some places. Oh, I would definitely follow up on that. Thank you. So you have been a novelist and you're, you're doing short stories also. So how do you approach short stories, and how is it different from writing a novel? Well, um, you know, I started out writing short stories. It's actually my favorite literary form. Um, I love to read short stories. I really enjoy writing short stories. Um, and to me, the difference is kind of the difference between choreography. I see a short story as being more like the job... <clears throat> being a writer of a short story, more like the job of someone who choreographs a dance. And I see writing a novel as um, more the, the work of someone who is an architect. Um, and you know, in my worst moments, it's, I'm an architect of a, a cathedral or a government building or something, and it's never going to be finished. Um, but I think that what happens is that um, I, I get caught. Characters catch my attention. And sometimes they're characters from short stories. Um, in my book, um, A Walking Fire, um, the, the father-daughter relationship emerged from a short story. Um, and, and the characters just don't want to let go, and I don't want to let go of them, and, and suddenly it's three or five years later, and we're still together. Um, and so, you know, I enjoy those relationships. I get a lot out of getting to know people <clears throat> at that length. Um, I'm not sure that I would say that I, there's more depth to a novel because um, I think there's a lot of depth to a good short story. Um, but um, with novels, for instance, you, I start dreaming about the characters. And then when I start dreaming about them, I know that I'm going to have to say goodbye to them. Um, and writing a selection of short stories, and, and you know, this, these stories were written over a period of about 20 years. Um, and I in between novels, um, I can explain how I write and share drafts and so forth and why I have time between novels, but that's another question. Um, but um, the short stories, it, it, in some ways, it's a little bit like having a series of love affairs. You know, you get excited, you get involved, and then somehow it ends. And then, oh, right. the next story, you get excited, you get involved, and so forth. And a novel really is more like a, a long relationship, a long marriage. And there, there's something to be said for both of those. Um, and, and so I guess I'd have to say that I do enjoy both forms. Um, but my favorite is a short story. I think that that's why I write poetry. You know, it's a time commitment as well. You dive in or if you've ever acted as you become somebody else, the longer that run of that show is, if you come, become somebody else and it's just a weekend performance, if it's a six-week performance, if it's a year performance, it really gets into your psyche in these ways that, like you said, the experience can be just as profound, but its impact on the artist has a whole other understanding and nuance that I think maybe if you're not the artist creating that, you don't understand. Yeah, I think that's true. 
And um, I, I love good poetry, and I, I know that I'm a terrible poet because I read a lot of poetry. <laughs> so, you know, it's, I once took, um, audited a class taught by Phil Levine, who was one of my favorite poets. And um, he was very generous letting me audit his class. I was on a sabbatical, and um, he was teaching in the Boston area. And, um, you know, I learned by the end of the class that I wasn't a poet. And I, I, I told him that, and he said, that's really great. And I, and I thought it was great, too, because I, it was sort of one thing I knew I, I, I couldn't do. I really tried. And, you know, I studied a lot of literature. I read a lot of poetry. But I thought, okay, well, that's something that I can let go of now. Um, cause there, and I, there's so much uh, to work with in, in prose fiction, that, uh, and I also write essays. So. Well, and I, yeah, and I would say that your fiction and your prose is very poetic. So you are a poet. It's just you're not as into the sparse language in the way that a poet has to be, right? You don't just hint at it. You tell the story. It, do you understand? Yeah, yeah. I, well, I appreciate the comment. You know, I think that good uh, fiction is as musical as good poetry or a good literary memoir. Um, and, you know, I, I actually read my work out loud before I submit it and <clears throat> with the last novel, before I sent in all the, the copy edited changes, I read the whole thing out loud, about 10 pages a day. Because um, if, you, if you read more than that, you're not paying attention. Um, so, so, you know, we, we come uh, storytellers from a, an oral heritage. And I think that good writing should be musical. But I do know what you, what you mean, that some, some novelists are more they seem more as if they're conveying information than um, uh, dancing with the characters. That's exactly right. Like you say, a good novel is very much full of poetry. And that's what I love about reading. When you fall into a story and you're getting all that emotional nuance and just the way you opened with your reading, there was a lot of emotion in you being in that seat and the way you described it. I felt all the feelings, even though you didn't need to say them, right? You were very descriptive in that way. Like the idea of reading back, I don't think I've heard anyone teach that. And I'm curious, have you shared that with students in your past? Do you mean reading it out loud, my work out yeah, loud? I, think, I mean, as a poet, you have to read your work out loud. And I catch, I catch so much stuff when I read it out loud and I'm able to, to correct and I think if right. more people read their fiction out loud, because I love to read to people. And when I start reading someone's fiction out loud, it just it changes the feeling. And if it's not really well written, you don't quite get the same impact as you do when you're reading it, because sometimes the mind skips ahead. And I think that that's such a great – I'm hoping you're teaching that to students. Oh, yeah. Yeah, I, I teach uh, at Stanford. And in one of the classes I'm actually teaching this coming quarter is reading and writing the gendered story. And – we do expos students do expository writing, but they also do um, creative writing, either memoir or fiction. And um, I talk to them about that. And also, I mean, my I do a lot of revision, uh, which is why it takes so long to write a book. Um, why this book took 20 years. Um, and what I do with like a draft of a novel is I'll write the, a draft of a novel. I would never send my first draft to anybody, but then I'll. By the second draft of the novel, um, I send it to three or four trusted readers. Some of them are, are not writers. Some of them are writers. 
And, um, and during that time, you know, people say they'll get back to you in six weeks, and it's usually two and a half months. And that's when I have a chance to fiddle around with a, a new story or continue a new story. Um, and then I get their feedback, and I go through the manuscript, and I say, well, um, Blake said this, and Harry said that, and Juan said this about this page. And, and I think, well, you know, Juan and Harry agree with one another, and I agree with them, so I'm going to forget what Blake had to say. <laughs> um, <laughs> exactly. Blake doesn't know what she's talking about. <laughs> but, but, but if everybody, if everybody um, raises a question on a page, you know, they don't understand something or they need it developed more, then I know I need to, to work on it more. And so what I then do is I work on the hard copy, and then I retype the entire manuscript onto a new file. And I do that um, seven, eight times um, before a book is finished. I'm in the sixth draft of a new novel right now. So for me, revision, actually, I, I love revision. And we were talking before about architecture. I find architecture really daunting. And I know some people get high on the gener generative quality of beginning a project. I get terrified at that stage. But by the time I've done a couple of drafts of a book, I know I know what's going to happen. It may take years. It will take years. Um, and so I, I feel much better sort of tinkering within the house that's already been built. And uh, I can hear the music of language um, more clearly then because I've got the, the walls put up. Yeah. That would make so sense, too, the fact that revision, loving revision shows in your work and also in your awards. <laughs> you, know, you know, revision is so important, especially with the kind of quality that you're putting forth. Well, I have to I, say, my students, my students, I think, think I'm a witch at the beginning, but um, I, I've, ha I've had people come back to me and say, wow, that revision stuff, that really works. <laughs> <laughs> you know, I teach poetry into the in the K twelve, and that's one of the hardest things to teach is that it's okay to revise. You want to revise, you know. There's such a fine line between building up confidence and and instilling the desire to do better. Yeah, you know, there's yeah. a fine line, and I think when when you get to college, you can be a lot. I I know when I got to college, my professors became a lot more brutal than my high school teachers. Mm -hmm. That I really entered that game. It's great that you're teaching uh, the, that age group. I mean, because kids are often so afraid of poetry. Even my students at Stanford, when one of my other classes is a class where I uh, teach two or three books of poetry and some, you know, some short stories and novels and memoir and so forth, and they're always afraid of the poetry. Um, so it's great that you're getting them at that age. Very important. It is. It is it's great that like when I get them young, because when they're young, they think it's fun. And then there's a certain age they hit where like, oh, this is dumb. I mean, you, I have to have a lot of shielding and confidence because I, I catch how many times I walk into classrooms like poetry and there's just a big whine and like, I hate poetry. And I'm like, they don't hate you. They just hate poetry. <laughs> yeah. so, so back to your stories. There's a theme to this collection. What is it? Uh, well, I would say it, it has to do with that notion of salvage that I meant to, mentioned mm -hmm. early on. And um, one reason I didn't use that as the title of the book is it sounds kind of dreary. And I, I'd say that it's about reunion and repair and forgiveness and reconciliation and, you know, sharing bread and salt and coming together in all kinds of different ways because 
the book is set in um, many places in, we've already talked about Tunisia, but also in India, in Indonesia, in Turkey, in Italy, in France, in Wyoming, Washington State. Um, there's, there's several pieces that are set here in the valley, although the valley isn't mentioned by that. I mean, the Anderson Valley. Um, mm-hmm. So, um, you know, it's, it's about, in some senses, it's about kind of salvaging our connections to one another, um, both mm-hmm. internationally and as, as next-door neighbors. Yeah. I like that, salvaging our connections with one another. That's wonderful. Why don't you read just the rest of that excerpt? Okay, so um, just for people who t- turned in, tuned in a bit late, um, I was just starting to read a story um, called Coming Through. The character has just landed uh, in the Detroit airport, and it's a freezing cold uh, December night. Um, and this is a flashback to her. She's just come from Miami. And there's a short flashback to, to a visit in Miami, and then we get back to the airport. So coming through, just last night in Orange Blossom Land, this reunion with your oldest friend in her favorite South Beach Cafe is the reward for that boring conference, a sweet, swanky night. After her second glass of wine, Janice smiles mischievously. Marlowe, where did you find that dreary coat? Hmm, it's a classic black coat, versatile, mid-calf, slimming, you say, taking in Janice's mauve mohair jacket and her emerald green shift. Tomorrow, really, you look like a nun. Come on, you argue. It's practical, chic, like a basic black dress. See how the red scarf brightens it? Okay, a post-Vatican II nun, she laughs. Honest, Tam, it reminds me of the coats our moms wore to synagogue. Next time I'm in the cities, we'll go shopping and I'll introduce you to the 21st century. I'd like that, you grin. Sometimes you envy her Florida adventure, but your parents are frail and you can't leave St. Paul. Janice, whose parents are cruising the Mediterranean, calls your filial attentiveness saintly, but as the only child, it's just your job. The new terminal, they say, will be state-of-the-art. Right now, it's a chaotic construction site with culinary choices ranging from the dismal to forget it. You opt for sushi. Sushi at a Midwest airport. Hmm, maybe not the brightest idea. Well, you feel like a light male and a large Sapporo, and they allow you to wheel in the luggage cart. Focus tomorrow. Opening your laptop, you ignore tomorrow's charts and feel called to scrub your inbox, a perfect task for the interstices of life. You do a search for Jonathan and delete all his messages as he deleted you from his life last month. Would that it were so easy to erase loss or longing. Now on to work. Too soon the sushi and more disappointingly the Sapporo are finished There's a lot more email, but weary travelers hover hungrily eyeing your table. You bust your plate and start strolling. Still 4,000 more steps to walk today. Bargain ticket. Why did George get you the cheapest seat? A lousy middle spot all the way from Miami. You've only been pleasant to George, offering lifts when his jalopy breaks down, soliciting his thoughts on designs. He manages great bookings for Dan and Angus and Lloyd. Half the time that they're bumped into those first-class seats and get passages to sleek airline lounges. 
It's not some sort of sexist thing on George's part. Of course it is. Just buck up. At least you have a job and a free trolley. Exercise will clear your head. You push the cart from one terminal to the next, past shops selling briefcases, cell phones, expensive men's clothing. It's good to stretch your legs after three days of panels and board meetings. The airport is packed with stranded winter holiday families, tired children, and even more exhausted adults. So many passengers are dressed in pastels, perhaps an ancient pagan reflex to appease the gods of winter. Still, you can't imagine wearing pastel to an airport. Excuse me, miss, an old man steps close, grabbing your arm anxiously. You're a little annoyed, then you sense his panic. Are you okay? You work for the airlines, right? He's breathless, flushed. For the airport? No, sorry to disappoint, I'm just a passenger. Oh, I thought with the black uniform and all. You will never tell Janice this story. Sorry, he's trembling now. Sorry to bother. He turns away. Hold on. You reach for his bony shoulder. Is something wrong? Well, he whispers hoarsely, I lost my wife. You take his hand. Misplaced, he adds quickly. She's not dead or anything. His voice winds higher and fainter. I told her to let the children visit us for Christmas. I bet she's fine. Let's look for traveler's aid. See that desk there? You guide him closer. They'll call her name over the loudspeaker. Drained but resolute, the old man pivots toward the desk. He walks away without even saying goodbye. You stride another 30 minutes, 3,000 steps, and decide to look for a seat where you can review Monday's meeting agenda. Bingo, an empty gate. Your concentration lasts exactly 40 minutes. 110 minutes to take off. Resume walking. Why did you leave your earbuds at home? A little music would muffle all this clanking, buzzing, sneezing, coughing, clattering. The overhead TVs blare alarm about a snowstorm in New England. A man in a shiny green gabardine suit leans against a pillar, shouting into his cell phone. You imagine he's a giant frog. Are you losing your mind? People more sensible than you, black, Asian, Latino, white, young, old, the whole world are sequestered between headphones or engrossed by paperbacks, deep in survival mode. Abruptly, a boarding pass is thrust in your face. You're startled, then you regard the woman, perhaps 25, perhaps North African or Middle Eastern, wearing a black hijab, long navy dress, and holding a hefty toddler. You recall Janice's crack about the nun. The hand of Fatima dangles from the gold chain around the woman's neck. Poor thing is terrified, worn out, lugging her son in a battered houndstooth satchel. Flight, she demands. Where? Immediately you understand you may be her last resort. When you discover the flight leaves in 20 minutes, you're sure of it. Must hurry, she frowns on the verge of tears. Late, very late. Yes, you nod. But you'll be fine. You say this with your eyes as well. Doubtful, exhausted, she shifts the boy higher with her right arm. The knuckles on her left hand are white from gripping the valise. Here, you adjust the luggage cart. You can put your bag in front of mine. She regards you suspiciously, but you are, after all, some kind of airline agent, so she accepts the offer, relief letting her face. Your son, you point to the upper rack, then touch his foot lightly. He can sit here. Her eyes widen, shaking her head vehemently. She reaches for the valise. Okay, okay, you say softly. 
holding up your palms. Just just the bag. She nods as if she's giving you something. Gate B23, you whistle. That's pretty far. She stares at you almost angrily. Cleveland, more upbeat now. You, you speak slower. Going to Cleveland. Cleveland, Ohio, she answers solemnly. You point to Terminal B sign. Cleveland, here we come. Every gate is crowded with vacation refugees dumped between delayed flights. In a corner, a group of 10 or 12 South Asian women lie on the floor sound asleep. Coming through, you call, then louder. Boarding flight. Where did you get this lingo? The humans see parts for you, the young mother and her squirming son. Several people approach with questions, but you wave them away politely. Emergency, boarding flight. A loud, controlled, professional tone. Two wheelchair caddies eye you skeptically, then then shrug to each other. You don't care. Coming through. The food court presents special obstacles as dazed passengers stand immobilized by bright lights at Cinnabons, PCBY yogurt, and Starbucks. The air is ripe with salt, sugar, cooking oil. Good thing you didn't have that second Sapporo. You're high enough. Coming through, you suddenly slow for the woman to catch up. She puts one hand on the card as if she's still worried you'll make off with her houndstooth bag. The boy is sniffling now, on the verge of meltdown. Threading past McDonald's and Chili's, you enter B-terminal and show your companion. She nods, blinks. A man waves eagerly. Really, you can only handle one passenger at a time. Oh, that old guy. He raises his wife's hand in salute. Merry Christmas, he shouts. Happy New Year, you cry back, glad for their reunion. Coming through, you call again. You haven't had this much fun in ages. Final call, flight 78 to Cleveland. A broken voice crackles over the loudspeaker. You can barely make out the words. How could this young woman understand? You roll the cart up to the queue. Cleveland, you're grinning. Cleveland, the young woman sighs. You hand her the bag. Have a safe. Before you finish, she's rushing down the gangway, balancing bag and baby. No wave. No thank you. Why should there be? It's all in a night's work. Sixty more minutes until the Minneapolis flight. You brush off your coat, turn the card around, and wait. And that is the voice of award-winning author Valerie Minor reading from her book of short stories, Bread and Salt, right here on Be More Now, KZUX. Keep listening. What was your inspiration for that story? Sometimes things happen to you, and uh, that did happen to me. Um, and, um, you know, it's, some things are added here and there, but uh, definitely the Lion King and definitely the young woman with the hijab and the baby and um, definitely taking care of the luggage card. It was really a great deal of fun, um, and it made the time pass. <laughs> right. I think that's the part maybe where poetry has that, you're in the moment with somebody, and it felt like the whole time I felt like I was in the moment with you. Well, thank you. That's, that's the best yeah. kind of compliment, yeah. Anything else you want to say about that story before I move on? I, I eventually did get rid of the black coat, but I bought another one. So I, <laughs> I'm not sure if I learned my lesson. <laughs> <laughs> that's great. <laughs> so you, you've written novels 
and you write short fiction and you write prose. So when you say you, that you write short fiction, what does short fiction mean to you? Well, you know, a short story can be anything from a micro fiction, which is kind of like a glance. You're walking by a room and you sort of glance into it. Or it can be uh, an incident, like the incident that I read coming through. Um, Or it can be, um, you know, a series of possibilities um, that maybe would take about 20 to 25 pages. Um, and then there's a novella, which is which ends the book. Um, it's set in Tunisia and in France and in Boston and then back mm-hmm. back in Tunisia. Um, and you know that, that's the kind of thing where you kind of you know I guess if a short if a if a, a short story is you know having lunch with someone, um, a, a novella is uh, spending uh, the day with someone and uh, you know. A novel is spending the week with someone, um, and uh, and I see them as basically kind of like the string segment of a a good chamber orchestra. You know, um, they have different resonances and how you feel them as the reader, um, but they're all they're all in some ways the same similar at least similar instrument. Mm-hmm. That's a great great way of saying it. I, I appreciate that. So when did this book come out? It just came out. It just came out this fall. This fall, right? So you've released yeah. a book during COVID, yeah. right? Yeah. This is your 15th book, I think. How has yeah. that impacted your experience of being coming out with a new book? Well, let's put it this way. Uh, one of my other books, The Low Road, which is the only memoir that I've written, which is about my mother's Scottish family and poverty and immigration and so forth. Um, that came out in September, um, not, you know, basically 9-11 is when it came out. Oh, wow. <laughs> I, seem to, <laughs> I seem to have a, a talent for, for letting these books come out at um, socially uh, difficult, non-celebratory well, yeah. yeah. <laughs> right, right. Um, but, you know, I, I find, especially with literary fiction, um, that that what matters is um, the quality. I mean, what matters with anything is the quality. Um, whether you know you're buying a new car or you're buying a, um, a sprinkler, um, but but I guess that there's a difference between a book and a sprinkler, and uh, it has to do with the fact that people will often recommend the, the book to other people, and it will have different kinds of re- resonances and. Uh, for instance, with that book that came out on 9-11, um, I, a lot of my stories have come out on BBC Radio 4. There's a, they have a series of um, wonderful short stories that are acted by British actors. And um, after a number of my stories had come out, the producer asked if I had something longer. And I said, well, you know, there's this, nove- this um, memoir of The Low Road. And she said, well, let me see that. And she, she read it, and she said, oh, this is a five-part series. And, oh, so, it, and so it turned into a five-part series on, on Radio 4 and had audiences all over Europe because they connect with Radio Deutsche Welle and um, all the other European radio stations. At least they did when they belonged to the EU. Um, right. And so, you know, these books have lives of their own in certain ways. And so the book, you know, did um, 
kind of uh, technically come out this fall, but I, it, especially with an independent book with you know an independent press, um, there there aren't a lot of uh, cannon fire and uh, U.S. Navy flights overhead to celebrate <laughs> the book coming out. Um, it's a much uh, slower rollout, um, and so I'll still be doing readings and events uh, this winter and spring for it. Um, and um, I'm just hoping that it it has a life of its own. Yeah. You have one coming up in Mendocino County, don't you also? Yes, I'm going to be doing something at Gallery Books um, when Christy gets organized with some winter events. Um, and so I'm looking forward to that. But it is going to be virtual. And uh, a lot of the re- all the readings I've done this fall have been virtual. And, you know, it's been really interesting how wide an audience you can reach with these. Yeah. Uh, and then really also you can reach a wide audience and then the, you also have it recorded. So then more people can tune in later. So that that also adds to it. I know I've done some different things where we maybe only have like 200 people or maybe 250 and suddenly there's 600 people and we're like, wow, we had 600 people, you know, so it's, it really does give that life of its own over time. And you right, can always right. remember people. Mm-hmm. And you also have some kind of connection to Mendocino County. What, what's your connection to our county? Uh, well, I, I live here. Um, I, this year I've lived here since uh, January. Um, oh. Uh, and then, but then I went back to San Francisco in the fall for three days every week. Um, mm-hmm. And actually, I've lived here since mid, mid-March. mid I was, oh, what a story. I like everybody. I had a dramatic story um, dealing with getting out of some place regarding COVID. But um, we've we built this, my partner and I have built this cabin uh, over a period of almost 40 years. So my partner and I started building this in the late 80s. And, um, it, you know, at first we had a, we had cooler, not a refrigerator. We had an illegal three-burner stove, uh, you know, three, three gas-lit <laughs> burners. Um, and uh, we eventually bought a wood stove to heat the house, which we still have. It's our only form of heating. Um, so it's pretty rudimentary, but as the, as the, and, and we had a privy that was a composting toilet. And um, then as time went on, uh, we, we were able to get a propane fridge. We were able to get a real stove. Uh, we were able to have our a friend who's a contractor build a real bathroom with a real toilet. Um, so, you know, as we've been able to, we put a little bit of money in every year. Um, and, and it's, it's a, you're in a beautiful spot. It's up on a ridge um, near um, near Navarro. It's, if you know where Rebecca Johnson's art studio is, it's across the highway from that and way up on a ridge. Mm-hmm. So, um, and during this COVID time, we've spent a lot of time here because, I mean, what would would any sane person's choice be? Living in the city with all the noise and dirt and everything closed or living here with the bobcats and the bear and, you know, the quail and the trees? Uh, So we've been here uh, spending most of the year here. And, And during the, what they used to call the regular, the normal, normal times uh, we always spent every summer here spending four months and then christmas holidays and thanksgiving and spring holidays so you know we're really right on step 
Yeah, it's, it's a wonderful place to be. And, you know, in the city, you don't see the sunrise in the same way. You don't see the moonrise in the same way. You hardly ever see stars. Um, and um, the only animals you see are little dogs on leashes and, and they're humans. So, um, so I, you know, I'm very happy here. Yeah. Like what's next? Are you working on a new book now? Yeah, I'm working on a new novel that um, actually part of it is set in San Francisco. It's about a mother and two daughters. And the mother, the, eventually, essentially the, the girls graduated from high school in Santa Rosa. And one went on to become a lawyer and she moved up to the North Country and works mostly with immigrants and uh, their issues. Uh, and the other daughter is a painter and she teaches painting at San Francisco State and lives in the city. And so the, the book is called um, The Roads Between and it's about the relationships among these three women and between one woman and another, you know, between the sisters and each other, between each daughter and the mother. Um, and I'm exploring issues of age and um, geography, how geography shapes our lives. Um, and, um, you know, each of them lives in a very multicultural world, so the, the characters are um, Euro-American and Latinx and African-American, a real mix of, um, you know, hum American people. Um, right. so Do you have I'm, a working I'm, title for it? Sorry? Do you have a working title for it? Yes, it's called The Roads Between. Okay. And and what? apropos of the revision process, when I sent the book out to, uh, to friends, uh, one set of friends, they both wrote back and they, they called it The Roads Between, it was called originally The Roads Between Them, Between Them. And that my two readers sent back uh, and they said, here's, here's your book, The Roads Between Us. And I thought, okay, that's a great title. And then the next time I sent it out, the reader said, no, no, just the roads between. So I, I, I don't think I'm going to cut it down anymore. I think it's just going to be the roads between. Yeah. And then also, how can people find out more about you, your book? Do you have a website, some other way people can see what Valerie Minor is up to? Sure. Um, my website is myname.com. So Valerie, V-A-L-E-R-I-E, Minor, like coal miner, M-I-N-E-R.com. It's all lowercase. And um, I'm doing a, a number of readings in the, the winter, um, one at Stanford, um, one in Virginia, but they'll all be virtual. Um, and they're all, of course, everyone is welcome and it's free. Um, and then, as I said, I, I think that Christie's organizing one at, at uh, Gallery Books. So those are the ones that I'm sure of so far. Anything, any last words you'd like to leave our, our yes. listeners with? No, it's been great fun talking to you. It's always great fun to talk to another writer who knows about literature, and I appreciated your insights and, and your questions. Um, and, uh, oh, I did want to say that I'm, I'm – thanks for asking. Uh, I'm part of this group called Authors in Pajamas, and well, it's a group of uh, women who have agreed to provide book, uh, book groups with free visits, conversations, readings, whatever they want, as long as they buy the book from an independent bookshop. So it's a book, um, let's see, it's 
it's um, book, um, but it's author. If you just look up authors in pajamas, and uh, there are a range of writers who are doing this. And the idea is that this has been a terrible time for independent bookstores, and we're trying to um, support independent bookstores by having people encouraging people to buy from them rather than from the um, the A place. Okay. That's great. And then if you give, you can email me that link and I'll be happy to put it on the information and the post of the show so people can always get it. Okay, great. That's great. Thank you so much. Yeah, thank you so much. I am so uh, grateful for this time with you and just your work is so inspiring and thanks for your talent and your gift to humanity, (laughs) the English speaking humanity. (laughs) Thank you. Well, thank you very, very much. And that concludes my interview with award-winning author Valerie Minor, and we've been discussing her 15th book, Bread and Salt. I apologize for the feedback toward the end of that recording. I went ahead and continued playing it since it was mostly legible even though there was little elves somewhere in the background. It's very interesting. So I apologize for that, but I believe her words still came through. I'm going to end the show this evening with a few poems from high school students that have been written in the last few months. From Anderson Valley High School, Claire Livingston, Trent Lopez, and Jimena Flor, as well as Fort Bragg High School students, Sinead Bermudez and Josephine Erickson. I hope, I wish, there is a reason for it. Everything has a purpose is a phrase that usually irritates me, used as an excuse or a dismissal of someone's plea for help. I wish desperately that it has a purpose now, though. Maybe the universe has had enough of us. It is the parent, tired of a toddler. We have been drawing on our walls, refusing to share, assuming our beloved toys will always be ours, not going to bed, not eating our food, hurting ourselves because we have become consumed by our blissful emotions, so we get a scare because nothing gentle or reasonable seems to work. COVID, poverty, wildfires, hurricanes, homeless, jobless, racism, corruption. The higher power of us has been delivering a series of one-two punches to knock the humanity back into us. I hope. I wish. No More by Trent Lopez Pandemic glooming down on our planet Depression sweeping over minds in session Systemic chaos every day, a nation in shambles People are fighting every day, not taking a single break So much is at stake, yet we work towards our demise Politicians fooling all of those with their stupid lies Pandemic running amok through our cities It's too much to handle for so many Anxiety of crowded places gotta get away and protect our faces Facing so many problems and days are wasted I tried to close my eyes and convince myself it's all a lie. I opened them to see a country start to downsize. People are flooding the streets. Cheers are in the air. A new president emerges and makes promises and takes a stand. The Luda's supporters are waiting for an offensive plan. 2020 is cutting deeper and leaving scars on our mental health. It's like a leech. A leech with a thousand teeth sucking our blood veins, draining us until we reach the point of being insane. Painful speeches and broken promises. What is next for our lives and losses? Perhaps a new perspective. When the virus leaves our lives, will we be protected? 
keeping a mask on even when the war is ended. Splendid, is what I hope I feel. But what if all I feel is as cold as steel when the sick has been defeated, treacherous streets and minds weakened and strengthened? It do be like that. When this crazy quarantine is over, the world will stay the same. We will forget it. I will forget. I will be surprised when it happens again. I will repeat the cycle like many others. Life will change and yet not change because people are set in their ways. Sometimes I will be afraid to step outside without a mask because it'll still be out there like a tempting flask. School will become a bore again because the novelty has ended. I'm used to it again. The environment will continue to perish just like us, like an ailing distant relative who we won't look. I dream that our post-COVID life will pass because it will become our life. The Wave of Problems by Sinead Bermudez Frustration swells inside me like the tide of the ocean. A lump has planted itself deep inside my throat, getting bigger, bigger, bigger. School, I think. This is what overwhelms me. No, it is from a bigger realm. It evolves from the problems that I feel helpless against. The problems of the world that swell, swell, swell. When will the wave crash against the headlands? Is this crash the solution or part of the destruction? When can my head finally land in the dewy grass where the world is at ease? I think of the problems of the planet, the virus, the division, the thirst for power, the people, the animals, the flowers and trees, shriveling away, away with the breeze. Shriveling as change comes forth, the change. The change makes me glower. The climate is not happy, so I am not happy. The lump in my throat returns once more, attempting to restore the emotions of the approaching wave. The wave, the wave. Crash, it slams against the cliff. Is this the end of the pain in which we suffer? or the continuation of our crumbling nation. I breathe in all the echoes of silence, resounding and fluttering down, settling deep in my stomach, dusting the lace of her gown. I breathe out teal ribbons of noises, unable to disintegrate. They billow out far past the skyline. Brilliant and loud, they deviate. I breathe in icy cold, frozen shivers. They trickle down notches of spine, and numb all the tips of my fingers, undaunted, assuredly mine. I breathe out throes of incandescence, allow seething figures to pulse, stretch their bodies back out, reconfigure, reconciling their lives, and divulse. I breathe in the tense feelings of conflict, compacting and folding within, closing off any sign of the outside, living solely as part of my skin. I breathe out all the worries inside me, Acknowledge them, then walk away. As the ice thaws, melodies get closer, and anything back there can stay. Hmm, wise words indeed. And that's about all I have for you this evening. I want to remind you that Sunday, January 24th from 3 to 5, here on KZWX, you can catch Na Mele o Hawaii, our annual Hawaiian sovereignty show with host Michael Arago. 
and he's going to be exploring spoken word and song about how Native Hawaiians feel about their place in modern-day Hawaii. You've been listening to Be More Now. I'm your host, Blake Moore, and I was interviewing Valerie Miner. Up next, we have Debbie Dan and the Treehouse, so definitely stay tuned for that. And I hope you have a really wonderful evening, and you stay sane and kind to yourselves and kind to others. Looking forward to talking with you next month. Love it, 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 love it,